Before we get into tonight's text, I'd love for you guys to join me in a bit of a thought experiment, if you will. You guys up for this? You can engage your imagination? Okay, great. Now, imagine for a moment, if you will, that you are a Jewish man or woman in the first century. So imagine your, you know, sandaled feet on the sandy roads of Galilee. Imagine the bright eastern sun bearing down overhead. And you, as a Jewish man or woman in the first century, have a, a profound love for this land, the land of your home. You have a profound love for its stories, the stories of your people. And your stories are the stories of Abraham and of Moses and of warriors like Joshua and David. And your stories are the Psalms and the prophets and the wisdom of Solomon. And your way of life is the Torah, God's law, made clear in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And you live in the very land in which those stories of the scriptures actually unfolded, but things are very different now. All is not well in the land of your heritage or of your people. After all, Yahweh, the creator God, had chosen Israel, your people, to become the means through which he would set the world to rights. But Israel failed again and again until her sin was so great that God allowed her to suffer the consequences of her evil. Babylon, pagan foreign empire, invaded the land of Israel, conquered its people, and drove them from their homes. Now, years later, the Jewish people are, are back in the land, but the land itself still belongs to pagans. Your home, the city of Capernaum, is a militarized zone. It's occupied by a foreign presence, and it has been for some 70 years now. And though the land belongs to your ancestors, it is ruled by the Roman Empire. And these great centurion bullies remind you of their lumbering presence constantly. They make daily security rounds down the city borders. Your uncle, uh, a farmer, was so burdened by Roman taxes that he was forced to sell his farm and work as a debt slave in the fields that his family once owned. And these occupying powers care nothing for your stories or for your way of your life, least of all your God. They use their powers to abuse you and your people daily through political and mental and emotional and physical means. And with all these stories and the world in which you live, never far from your consciousness, you rise in the morning and you set off into your village to prepare for a day's work of fishing. Dawn is breaking in the east, the air is cool and damp. And as the homes around you wake and stir, you catch wind of conversations as people begin to come out of their homes. Some sense of excitement in a nearby dialogue. And curious, you move toward the voices and you hear about a traveling stranger. It's a, a rabbi, a teacher. And not just that, a prophet maybe. And he's been traveling throughout the region. He's been preaching, he's been healing the sick, he's been casting out demons. Crowds have begun to flock to him. He's already begun to gather apprentices to follow his teachings and his way of life. And he's called Yeshua Manatsarat, Jesus who is from Nazareth. And you set out to join these crowds because you're interested in, the, in what this enigmatic and alluring teacher has to say. And with huge groups gathered around this guy, Jesus, who is from Nazareth, has begun to unpack his manifesto for life and what he calls the kingdom of God. Now, with your imagination still engaged, let's go somewhere else for just a moment. Imagine now you're a man or a woman living in France in the early 1940s. So ongoing rumors of the occupying German army's barbaric violence and ruthless oppression continues to reach your village. 
And you sit outside your countryside cottage one gray, foggy morning, wondering what's going to happen to you and to your people. And you open a weathered copy of the New Testament to Matthew chapter 5 and begin to read. Or one more, imagine that you are a terrified Syrian caught in the endless storm of civil war for years now, the crushing reality and encroaching threat of violence closing in on you and your family day after day after day, and you gather with other Christians in secret, and you open the Bible to read Jesus' teachings, Matthew chapter 5. Or you can disengage your fantasy for this one and simply consider the world in which you live. Your world shrinking all the time via media access and globalization is a never-ending parade of violence. Suicide bombers and police brutality and cars purposefully steered into helpless pedestrians and ongoing executions and mass shootings so normative they no longer surprise or shock us at all. In the fresh and baffling threat of nuclear war, North Korea issued stamps celebrating and commemorating their newest missile developments, missiles that they could allegedly aim at Guam. And in response, Donald Trump said from a golf course, quote, North Korea, best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury and power, the likes of which the world has never seen. Or if you don't want violence from the global media, just go to your local news and you'll see domestic abuse and child abuse and stabbings and shootings and beatings and animal cruelty. And now here you sit in a church building in Vancouver, Washington in 2017 with, in theory, a Bible open before you to Matthew chapter 5. We are currently knee-deep in this ongoing study of something called the Sermon on the Mount. And as a, a pastor and a teacher here at Van City, I'd love to make something very plain about this series and about tonight. My prayer is that we would go on a journey together. And I mean that in several ways. I want us as a church, as a family, to walk the long road of spiritual formation together. I believe that's how it's done, not by yourself in an individualistic sense, but together as a family. I want us to learn what it means to apprentice Jesus, the thing I've said again and again and again, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And part of what it means to walk the way of Jesus, to take this journey, is to, in Jesus' own words, learn his teachings and then put them into practice. So, with that said, let's look to the teaching of Jesus and work through the text line by line. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 38. You guys ready? Yep? Okay. Here comes the deep water. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. We'll stop there for just a minute. Now, while listing any number of violent happenings in today's world is not exactly difficult, in reality, of course, uh, the, the, the reality that violence extends all the way back to the dawn of time is something that we take for granted. In John's biography of Jesus, for example, the devil, this uh, antagonist of God, the spiritual entity, is described by Jesus as having been a murderer, quote, from the beginning, end quote. And in context, the beginning in this sense actually means the very beginning. Before recorded history, the devil was violent. He was a murderer. And recorded history doesn't get off to a much better start. The first story that follows the fall of man is of Cain murdering his brother Abel. 
and the proliferation of violence is documented by the Bible and really just about every historical source available to man. Violence and its ensuing effects have always been a problem. One reason is that violence always begets violence and exponentially so. In fact, though human history is replete with violence from its very beginning, there is general agreement among sociologists and historians that the 20th century has been the bloodiest in the world's very long life. Violence always begets more violence. So to curb this problem, the ancient world utilized a very specific premise, and it's this very idea that begins Jesus' teaching when he says, you have heard it said, Jesus then quotes an idea well represented in the Torah. Here it is in Exodus. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. It's also in Leviticus. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Or here's the more hardcore version from Deuteronomy. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and foot for foot. Now this idea surfaces in various iterations a further eight times throughout the, all five books of the Torah, as well as Judges, Samuel, 1 Kings, Esther, Psalms, Proverbs, and Daniel. So to us, this sounds rather intense, or at least to me it sounds rather intense. I don't know about you guys. Maybe I'm easily offended. But keep in mind that this ancient premise is actually the basis for the formal legal systems that followed. The United States derived its law from England uh, with the contributive voices of folks like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson and so on. England derived its system of law from Europe at large, who in turn derived their system of law from Rome and from Greece. So that to say, all Western countries owe their basic legal systems to the early codes of the Greco-Roman world. Ancient Israelites, on the other hand, had the Torah or the law of Moses. And therein lies one massive difference. The Torah had a divine origin. God made it up. Israel's sense of law and of justice was thus shaped by what they believed to be the will of God rather than of some dude or collection of dudes or a human hierarchy of government. Now, one staple of the concept of law is called commensurable punishment. That is, punishments ought to be equal in measure to the crime that necessitates them. So in Latin, this is called lex talionis, or the law of retribution, and it appears, as we've seen, all throughout the Torah. The point is that, according to lex talionis, justice necessitates retribution. And the language here is actually pretty stark, if you think back to that passage from Deuteronomy, show no pity. But notice also that the retribution is clearly limited in scope, equal to but never more than the original injury. This serves a, a very practical purpose. While allowing for retribution, limiting said retribution curbs violence and stunts the snowballing effect of vengeance. And I think that we get this as a general rule. The general human condition tells us that this is necessary. The human tendency is to respond to an offense with an exaggerated offense, not equal to. Uh, my three-year-old son, Beck, for example, he gets this look in his eyes, we call it the look, when uh, his cousin Remy snatches a toy out of his hands, his eyes go like all red, and uh, he doesn't simply snatch the toy back, an equal offense, he like wails on her with both fists at one time. It's horrible. And we're, we're, we're working on it. Don't judge him. He's three. We're, we're, he's getting better. Um, but really, this sort of toddler behavior is also normative among adults. 
and entire nations. I mean, you mess with us, we'll send the drones. You build a nuke, we'll ready an arsenal. And the Torah is ahead of its time in working to curb the destructive cycles of violence. So if we were to focus on that aspect, what follows could be straightforward enough. Oh, it was a limitation, that makes sense. But notice, while the Torah limits retribution, it also requires it. And this is the legal history into which Jesus of Nazareth steps. Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, who we think would have had the Torah committed to memory. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy, committed to memory. He is going to reveal God's heart behind the law of retribution, Lex Talionis. And with what scholars call the three political commands in the Sermon on the Mount, so you have oaths, which we did last week, nonviolence, which is this week, and then enemy love, Jesus is essentially drafting a constitution for the kingdom of God. In Jesus' upside-down economy, required retribution is going to be put away in order that grace and love and forgiveness might reverse the dangers of retribution, creating an alternative society for disciples of Jesus. Now, Israel's Lex Talionis was comprehensive in scope, meaning it, it included capital punishment, you know, life for life, which is the death penalty. It also included corporal punishment, which is the whole tooth for tooth, wound for wound, burn for burn thing. Uh, murders, murderers were to be executed. Killing another person's animal required the blood of the offender's animal. And this was really applied across the board to both men and women, young and old. So we see that the law of retribution, well represented throughout the Torah, was about more than just limiting violence. It was a requirement for retributive justice. And we need to see this in order to understand the shocking gravity of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Scholar, uh, Scott McKnight says it this way, there is no way around explaining what Jesus is saying in our text. Jesus abruptly ends the Mosaic command to show no pity in the appropriation of the Lex Talionis and in its place orders his followers to be merciful. This means that Jesus is urging his followers in a new direction. The law was concerned with the requirements and the maintenance of equal retribution. So God is keeping violence at bay, in a sense. But Jesus embellishes the requirement in question and reshapes his disciples' paradigm for responding to evil. And his words are, are shockingly simple. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright translates that line, don't use violence to resist evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that Jesus releases his community from political and legal order, from the national form of the people of Israel, and makes it into what it truly is, namely, the community of the faithful that is not bound by political or national ties. And the word Jesus used uh, that is translated here as resist, that is, do not resist an evil person, is the Greek word anisteme. And that word, along with its subsequent translations, are both pretty tricky. So when we hear Jesus say, do not resist an evil person, many imagine a scenario in which a person confronted by violence kind of rolls over on the ground like a ragdoll, passive, and does nothing whatsoever. And the word anisteme can be defined as to engage in revengeful or violent retaliation. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Here are some alternate translations of Jesus' words. Do not take revenge. Do not retaliate revengefully using violence or evil means, or do not use violence to resist evil. But of course, Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He goes on to cite concrete variations of what he expects 
with specificity. Non-resistance for Jesus and his disciples is an active role. It is not a passive role. In fact, scholars argue that that line could be translated, be ready for an act of grace, which I love. Now, while we have to acknowledge the radical nature of Jesus' teachings, it's important to understand that he really didn't just pull this out of thin air. There are actually foreshadows of this ethic in the Torah itself. In Leviticus, it's written, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Or in Proverbs, Do not say, I'll pay back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord, and he will avenge you. Some Jewish writings, as well as writings found really throughout the wider Mediterranean world from around the time of Jesus, espouse similar ideas. And even so, when you look at it on paper, it seems to complicate things a bit. After all, we've said again and again throughout the series, as Jesus said himself, that this controversial rabbi isn't here to denounce or to abolish the Torah. He's here to fulfill it. That is, the Torah was established to regulate sinful behavior. And Jesus is drawing his disciples' attention to God's greater original intent for his people. But here in this particular text, Jesus seems to decisively put away part of the Torah. So how are we to understand that teaching? Well, scholars argue one of two possibilities. It could be that Jesus understands the Torah's law of retribution as not unlike the Torah's certificate of divorce, if you remember that teaching from a couple of weeks ago. Both are merely permissions granted to regulate sinful behavior, and they are not an outworking of God's will, meaning it's really just damage control. It's not what God wants, essentially. Or it could be something else. Remember, the single most prevalent theme in the teachings of Jesus is what? Anyone? Who, someone had it. Who's, thanks, Levi. Yeah, the kingdom of God, which is a reality in which God's will is done, where people live in right relationships with God, with one another, and with creation itself. So the Sermon on the Mount is essentially Jesus' manifesto for life in the kingdom of God, which is why every single command is relational in nature. Thus, Jesus is teaching what it means for the reality of God's kingdom to come to fruition in the here and now. And if that happens, the subjects of the kingdom will not trade in retribution because they will love one another with peace and they will live in peace with one another. So then the legal apparatus of retribution was a permission from God rather than God's truest intent for his people. In either event, the teaching itself stands from Jesus. It's stark, it's bold, and it is decidedly to the point. And the origin of such a command, do not resist an evil per person, is clearly sourced from Jesus' greatest command of all, which is love God and love other people. When Jesus' disciples are shaped by this great commandment, they become a people who respond to injustice and to violence with grace and with compassion, and with abundant mercy. As we'll see in Jesus' next teaching, his disciples are to love their enemies, and the disciple of Jesus does not respond with violence against those that they love. So love, rather than retribution, becomes the means through which God administers justice. This is beautiful in a way that we can hardly imagine. In fact, Bonhoeffer observed the very same thing when he wrote, Evil will become powerless when it finds no opposing object, no resistance, but instead is willingly born and suffered. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. 
And Jesus uses this term, an evil person, do not resist an evil person, to describe the hypothetical antagonist in the situation. By this, he really could mean simply those who deal in evil, those who are evil practitioners, if you will, or he could mean those who are in league with the devil, who he calls the evil one. The language is similar there. Or it could simply mean those who belong to the other group, meaning people who are not disciples of Jesus. But the specific identity of an evil person, if any, is really beside the point. The point is how Jesus' disciples are to respond to evil with non-resistant, life-transforming love. In other words, do not use violence to resist evil. And about here, it's helpful to define what we mean by violence. Uh, Glenn Stassen, an ethicist from Fuller, defines the term thusly. Violence is destruction to a victim by means that overpower the victim's consent. I'll read that again. Violence is destruction to a victim by means that overpower the victim's consent. Theologian Greg Boyd defines violence a bit broader and says that violence is actions, thoughts, emotions, and words that violate the intrinsic worth of a person. And Jesus collapses all these different understandings of violence into this command, do not use violence to resist evil. Now, the, the nuance of how exactly we define violence might be, might be varied when you unpack definition to definition, but really I think much of violence is abundantly clear when we talk about it. We, we know violence when we see it. And this idea that we are to not use violence to resist evil carries on through the New Testament. Look at this example from Romans. Paul writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. My dear friends, leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Or here's another beautiful passage from 1 Peter. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Messiah suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So the premise is, is actually simple. Never meet violence with more violence. Instead, readily offer up self-sacrificial love, the kind that embodies Jesus' suffering, his self-sacrificial love that was displayed on the cross. As the French philosopher Jacques Ellul summarized, Violence begets violence, nothing else. Violence can never realize a noble aim. Evil means corrupt good ends. Ethicist John Howard Yoder noted that retaliation intends to preserve human society from chaos, but in reality, it guarantees at best a continuing chain of evil. At worst, 
It escalates like pouring oil on fire. Non-retaliation is the only way to break the chain of causation. Now, having been given a very stark, very bold command on how his disciples are to respond to an evil person, do not use violence, Jesus goes on to offer four examples of precisely how this might be accomplished. Are you guys still with me for another few minutes? Yes? Okay, great. Thank you. Look down at Matthew chapter 5, and let's continue reading in verse 39. Jesus says, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, remember, each of Jesus' examples are catered to his Jewish audience who lived and suffered every day beneath the violent oppression of the Roman Empire. Think back to our thought experiment from earlier. The Romans were comparable in Jewish thinking to the way Nazis are in modern thinking. They were villainous in every way, an archetype of evil. And so Israel was awaiting a political, military leader of a Messiah who would lead a violent revolt overthrow Rome and return the nation of Israel to its proper seat of glory. All of this backstory is crucial in understanding the full provocative weight of Jesus' four examples for how a disciple embodies non-resistance. And there are four such examples in the text. There's being violently assaulted, physically and insulted. There's being sued. There's being conscripted to support the Roman military. And finally, there's being asked to help others financially. And I want us to see that Jesus is not advocating passivity. He is advocating active generosity. And of course, as is always the case in our apprenticeship to Jesus, we are learning from a teacher by his way and his lifestyle, not just his words. Jesus was anticipated to be a suffering servant of non-resistance, specifically by the prophet Isaiah, who wrote in chapter 50 of Jesus, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. So Jesus begins in his examples. If anyone slaps you. Now, for one to be slapped on the right cheek ordinarily assumes that the antagonist employs a backhanded strike or, you know, maybe open if they're like Ned Flanders and they're a lefty. Um, but we think that the assumption is that this is a backhanded slap. So to be struck with a backhanded slap in the ancient world was an egregious insult to the dignity of a person's very being. And I, I realize that we don't like it either, but uh, there's something more focused built into the culture of Jesus' day. In fact, rabbinic writings from a Jewish elaboration on the Torah called the Mishnah mention this with specificity when they write, if he smacked him, he pays him 200 zuz. You know, you can deduce that that's money, right? If it is the back of the hand, he pays him 400 zuz. And into this culture, into the world of show no mercy, the backhand has to pay twice as much, Jesus imagines the scenario in which someone strikes you in the face with a degrading backhanded slap, and Jesus' answer to this is to turn the other cheek to them also. Don't punch back equally. Don't push them over, you know, an exaggerated defense. Do not nurture the cycle of violence. And again, this is not passive. This is not lay down and take it approach. When the victim of violence absorbs evil and then stands upright to face it again, you look evil in the eye, you force the evildoer to either relent 
or to fan the flames of violence all by themselves because you will not participate. And what's more, Jesus actually did this. If you remember from the story, we'll read later on in this series, they spit in his face, they struck him with their fists, others slapped him. And of course, if you know the story, Jesus does not retaliate. Now, if the whole turning the cheek thing wasn't shocking enough, Jesus goes on. Matthew chapter 5, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And Jesus is doing something interesting here as well. He's parodying and subverting both a legal setting and a social custom. So in Jesus' context, men ordinarily wore two layers of clothing. There was the outer layer, which was a cloak, and an inner garment, uh, a shirt if you like. If indeed someone were to sue a disciple of Jesus in court in order to obtain their shirt, which is like their undergarment, Jesus commands that they take things a step further by voluntarily offering the outer garment as well, which would essentially render them naked. But in Jesus' time, the robe, the coat, was more than just an ordinary garment. It acted as both a cover from the elements and as a blanket with which to sleep, which is nice and really practical if you think about it. In fact, it was so serious that the Torah prohibits taking the robe of an Israelite. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God is serious about blankets. Jesus is creating a scenario in which his disciples are demonstrating a radical willingness to sacrifice even for an evil person, even at the expense of themselves and of social norms. The idea is illustrated effectively with this uh, comic strip. And I realize having someone read you a comic strip is about the worst way to take in a comic strip, but here we go, I'm going to do it anyway. So you see this bully lift up this little kid. He's going to pound him. And this little boy says, wow, you're so strong. That's my voice for the little one. He's like, great shirt. And the bullies, stop being nice to me. And here, take my snack. And then he hugs him. And, you know, the bully is rendered defenseless by this uh, active nonviolence uh, as it's actually taking place. I don't know why the bully has a Star Wars shirt on. It seems derogatory to Star Wars fans, but maybe they're out there. I don't know. <laughs> the point is that good disarms evil. Creative nonviolence does more than simply limit violence, which is all Lex Talionis can do. It refuses to act as a conduit for violence at all and therefore breaks the cycle of violence. And Jesus goes on with his final two examples. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And here again, Jesus is referencing a well-known social custom. See, Roman soldiers maintained the legal right to force occupied peoples, which in this case are the Jewish people, into compulsory work to aid the Roman military. So Matthew actually do documents an instance of this in chapter 26 when Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry the cross of Jesus, if you know the story. So to use Jesus' example, a Roman soldier could approach one of Jesus' disciples walking down the road and legally require that that disciple... Uh, provide transportation for a mile, which on foot in the ancient world is a long way. And the response Jesus expects from his disciples, go with them two miles, not just one. So imagine it. Think back to our thought experiment. The oppressed Jewish peasant is legally forced by the evil oppressor to carry the soldier's bag. The villain, the abusive pagan occupying force and rather than rise up and revolt and stab the oppressor, as one group of Jews called the Zealots actually did, the oppressed party instead, in Jesus' mind, obliges them. 
But then something even more amazing happens. The mile gets used up. The soldier says, okay, that's the mile. Give me the bag. And the disciple of Jesus says, are you sure? Let me carry it a bit more for you. We're almost to the city. I can take it the rest of the way. Let's keep going. And I wonder what the oppressor might think about this Jesus who taught his followers to do weird stuff like this. And Jesus goes on with his final example. Give to the one who asks you, Jesus says, urging, urging his followers to release money to those in need with no indication of exacting repayment, let alone interest. And he goes on to add the one who wants to borrow from you. The point is that Jesus is subverting the world of court and of retribution and of required repayment for offenses. Jesus replaces those systems with a new system of grace and compassion and love by creating a new culture of generosity that is to be realized within this alternative society called the church. Jesus is calling his disciples into the kingdom where retaliation will come to an end. How incredibly beautiful is the way of Jesus. This, my friends, is, is what draws me to this first century rabbi and his way of life. I could never conceive of anything half as lovely, half as counterintuitive as this. And however we understand Jesus' interpretation and fulfillment of the Torah, one thing is abundantly clear. While the Torah required that an evil person be shown no mercy and being dealt swift and equal retribution, Jesus teaches that his disciples are to show mercy not only refusing to take retribution into their own hands, but reversing it, overcoming evil with good by responding with nonviolent compassion. Because of this, the earliest Christians for hundreds and hundreds of years were all pacifists, a word I've happily applied to myself and my theology for many years, but I understand that this term is a bit tricky. So many misunderstand the term pacifism to imply passiveness. But the etymology of the word is actually quite different. The root word in pacifism means to pacify, that is, to actively snuff out violence without using it. It does not imply one is to simply, you know, become a doormat for evil. The way of Jesus is often called the third way for a very good reason. The way of Jesus rejects the black and white either-or options of violence, fight or flight, and instead suggests a creative, spirit-empowered third way which Jesus illustrates, turn the other cheek, give them your cloak also, go with them two miles instead. This is why New Testament scholar Scott McKnight wrote this, pacifism isn't quietism or withdrawal or inactivity, and it isn't simply submission. Pacifism's root is connected to the peacemaking beatitude, rooted in love and expressed when the follower of Jesus actively seeks peace. Pacifism isn't a lack of interest or non-involvement, but the hard work of seeking peace. And disciples of Jesus often disagree on the implications of pacifism. Are there exceptions to the rule? If so, what are they? Is violence ever the lesser of two evils? If so, when? And though the church was essentially in, in agreement for hundreds of years until Constantine on rejecting all violence, there has since been nuance and debate and intelligent people disagree. But where there is agreement, is on this idea that part of what it means to follow Jesus means rejecting basic fight-or-flight options in favor of being led by the Spirit into creative, nonviolent, peacemaking solutions. And Jesus isn't proposing a practical solution. 
I feel like uh, that disclaimer needs to be said. He isn't saying, hey, be nonviolent because it'll actually fix everything and it'll keep you safe. Uh, if that's your expectation, I've got one bummer of a story for you. It's called The History of the Church and its Martyrs. Uh, but even so, the teachings of Jesus in this area have actually changed the world. Uh, I think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who's the easiest example, uh, whose entire civil rights movement, which the world uniformly loves to celebrate, but somehow glosses over the fact that it was compelled and built entirely upon the nonviolent teachings of Jesus. And it was put into practice in the face of injustice and police beatings and fire hoses and German shepherds and imprisonment and really ultimately death. It did not keep Dr. King safe but it exposed the truly heinous evil of American racism and violence, and it refused to participate in that violence. He changed the world with the nonviolent way of Jesus. And Dr. King is just one easy example. There are really many, many more historic moments in which disciples of Jesus decided to take their teacher very seriously at great personal expense, and they changed the world as a result. Unfortunately, the so-called Church of Jesus is perhaps more often recognized for their rejection of Jesus' teachings on nonviolence. And the examples are too many to list. Emperor Constantine, the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, World War I, in which one group of Christians went to battle to kill another group of Christians in the name of their countries. And of course, too many modern conflicts and violence invoked in Jesus' name to even begin to mention uh, this week. I could just list a, a horrible litany of examples. Now, before we end tonight, I realize that the implications of a teaching like this are so incredible and so provocative and so counterintuitive that they invite all sorts of additional questions. Isn't this a great way to get killed is one of them. Uh, isn't this impractical? How far can we take this teaching? Uh, what about government? What about military? What about police? What about self-defense? What about the violence in the Old Testament and the warfare in the Old Testament? And see, most of Jesus' commands are counterintuitive, sure, in that they invite us to remember and realize the great qualification for discipleship. When Jesus calls people to follow him, he says, first, you must die to yourself. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and then follow Jesus. And even so, Though most of Jesus' commands strike us as counterintuitive, or, or maybe difficult is a great way of saying, none of them confound the American sensibility quite like the command to nonviolence. And one reason is, I think, that though Jesus' teaching on, say, lust strikes us as difficult, it doesn't necessarily strike us as foolish. We can see the wisdom in Jesus' teaching on lust. And though Jesus' teaching on divorce, for example, may appear really strict, it doesn't seem absurd to us. In the context of the church, we can make sense of that one. But to the American mind, to the American sensibility, Jesus' idea that we would respond to evil with good strikes many as foolish. It strikes us as absurd. And we can't possibly go everywhere this text leads in a single evening, so we're going to spend some time with this idea and with its implications for the next few weeks. Uh, in the meantime, I can recommend this excellent resource, uh, a book called Fight, by a gentleman named Preston Sprinkle, which is perhaps the most uh, thorough, um, biblical, uh, and still really readable uh, resource on Christian nonviolence that I know of. I'll offer more recommended reading each week if you're interested as we take on the questions and the implications raised by this passage. This is a great place to start, Fight by Preston Sprinkle. To end tonight's teaching, 
before you guys, uh, if, you're, if I've still got your attention, you haven't checked out or anything like that, let me make this personal for the last couple of minutes. Now, I am absolutely not ignorant to the fact that for many, this is a conversation that's not exactly comfortable. Um, when broaching the subject of nonviolence, many find their minds rushing to fear or to frustration or to a political ideology. Uh, last year, I found myself in this strange situation of taking a trip to Israel with a hodgepodge of a uh, group of people who were selected because they were influential figures. Why I was there, I have absolutely no idea, but they invited me, so I went. At any rate, a portion of the group consisted of young men and women who work in uh, politics. They worked in D.C. And one evening, we're in Jerusalem, we're having dinner, and this group's all hanging out, talking together about what they do and everything. And a young man on the trip who happened to be familiar with me and some of my writing asked me about nonviolence um, and some of my ideas. And I, I just wanted to eat my falafel. I had no interest in starting an argument at this table with all these people who work in D.C. I wasn't even interested in having a friendly civil debate at all. I just wanted to eat that falafel. It was really good. And, uh, but, you know, he was, he was sincere. He wasn't trying to provoke or antagonize me. He really wanted to know. So I was, like, trying to whisper to him on the side. I kind of think this. Um, and all of a sudden, heads began to turn toward us. And uh, people were leaning in, and their eyebrows began to furrow more and more as they leaned in and listened. And they became so frustrated. And suddenly, people I haven't even met on this trip yet are calling me naive and foolish and all this stuff. And my point is that I realize this conversation can escalate emotions for any number of reasons. Um, and they're not all illegitimate. Uh, they could, it could be your background or your upbringing or your political leaning, whatever it might be. I get that. I really do. I'm not trying to be dismissive. If you remember, I began this teaching by reminding us that the way of Jesus is a journey. Spiritual formation itself is a journey. I grew up in southeast Georgia. Uh, and though I grew up in the church with parents who both followed Jesus, my upbringing was in a world uh, that celebrated violent militarism and nationalism. My dad owned guns, like a crap ton of guns for no good reason at all. He was selling them briefly, I mean legally, but he was selling them. Um, I, I feel the need to specify. Uh, and uh, when, when my dad died, there was some distribution of his stuff, the, you know, the stuff that he had that was expensive and... I had flown back to Georgia for this awful funeral, and then I'm standing there in his room looking at this gun rack uh, and this collection of guns and, and, and really just grieved in my heart for a number of reasons. And it really wasn't just the Southern culture. Uh, it was the church culture as well. I grew up surrounded by a church that said, shoot to kill, aim for the head, blow them away, fight back, fight for yourself, kill for your family, kill for your country. This is the noble, God-fearing thing to do. And when I began to actually follow Jesus myself, I was compelled by this teaching that was so utterly contrary to everything I had been raised to believe. So I read, and I studied, and I asked questions, and I wrestled, and I did this for years researching and rethinking on my own with other people in the context of the church, uh, in seminary. And I became so fascinated and so passionate about this topic that I wrote books and, and albums about it. I traveled around the world talking about it and teaching about it, and I had conversations and debates and dialogue. And, and uh, my, my opinion grew and it evolved and it, and it transitioned the more and more exposure and learning and conversation I had. And I came to believe that violence is simply incompatible with the way of Jesus. 
And I want you guys to understand, I am not asking you to sit through this teaching and the ones that follow and just simply nod your head and agree with me. I'm not saying that there's like a Van City membership clause that you have to sign at the end of this and agree with me. There is absolutely room to take your time and think this through. I did. I'm, I'm inviting you to hear Jesus out for the next few weeks. Hear me out as I walk with you and listen to Jesus, listen to the scriptures, listen to the scholars, listen to history, listen to the Spirit of God. And suspend judgment. Sit in the tension as you go on this journey. Resist the urge to get angry or become dismissive or tune out or immediately push back. And just sit with these texts and these teachings and set aside what you think you may know for a time long enough that you might take your time and do the work of discerning evaluation, study what you find, and be slow in making a decision. I was on the phone with someone I hadn't spoken with in a year just before I finished writing this teaching, and he asked me on the phone, how has your church changed since the last time we talked? And I thought for a moment before I finally said, I think it feels more like a family now than it did a year ago. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my friend Scott, one of our elders here at Vance City, he pointed at a bunch of you guys eating nachos outside on the steps, you know, after the gathering, and he had this big smile on his bearded face, and he said, man, look at this church God made. And I have no interest in dividing us over a controversial issue. Satan would love that very much. Wherever we go these next few weeks and wherever you end up in your journey of spiritual formation, let us learn to agree well and disagree well and remain undivided for the sake of Jesus. And finally, before we pray, I realize that for most of us, all this talk about creative, nonviolent action, engaging though it may be, uh, it may not feel entirely practical for Monday morning, right? If no one's going to backhand you on Monday morning, I hope. Uh, but you know as well as I do that you will face conflict in the days ahead. This is an inevitability in your community, uh, in your family, at work, at school, whatever it, wherever it surfaces, it will come. And this teaching is inviting you to rethink even minor conflict. The way of Jesus invites you to reject the fight back option, reject the do nothing option, and instead be led by God's spirit into a creative third way. So how will you embody the cross-inspired, self-effacing, self-sacrificial love of Jesus, even in your day-to-day -day conflict? So I thought that in order to meditate, this, meditate on this, we would take communion together and remember our great king and our teacher who truly practiced what he preached. So let me pray before we come get the bread and the cup.